0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy.
1: And our first reading is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 33. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, what you hear whispered proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others... I also will deny before my Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Our second scripture reading is Luke 22, 39 to 46. This is uh, when Jesus goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are here, the moment you've been waiting for all this time, right? We're coming to the end. Yeah, I know. Some people are like, "Woohoo!" Okay. <laughs> We're coming to the end. This is our last sermon in our sermon series Church and State, the Rise of Early Christianity. Are we happy about that or are we sad? I don't know. It's a mixture of sadness and happiness, I know, all at the same time, right? I'm really, really excited about today because we've come to the point where we've been working through the history of the early church for the last 11 months. And now we are finally at a point where we can wrap this whole thing up. We're in the fourth part of our sermon series. As you can see up there on the screen, And we have been talking about individual Christians who have made a significant contribution to the early church. These are better known as church fathers and mothers. These are people who helped transform the church from a fledgling faith into the official religion of the Roman Empire. So last week we talked about two individuals who really transformed the faith in major ways. I want to recap who those people are so that we're all on the same page for today. Does that sound good to everybody? Choir, sound good to you? Yes, Yes. sound good to you? Yes. Yes, excellent. Okay, so last week we talked about the Emperor Constantine and the church father Athanasius. Constantine, the man whose face you see up there on the screen, the man whose face you've been staring at for the last 11 months, he was the first person to embrace freedom of religion. He was the first person also to really back The Christian faith. He did a couple of different things. One, he helped the church financially by building many Christian basilicas all over the Roman Empire. He also gave clergy a tax exemption within the Roman Empire. you got to love that tax exempt status, right? Okay, I got that from Constantine. I'm going to say thank you to him for that. And then the last thing he did was he started promoting Christians to High ranking offices within the Roman government. And that's something that we're going to talk more about today. But at the round this time, all of this is happening. You have to realize that Christianity isn't just one thing, there are many different versions of Christianity out there within the Roman Empire. And once Constantine decides he's going to back the church, he says, Okay, guys. No more of this, we're not going to have competing versions. We're all going to have one version, and we're going to be on the same page. So he calls the Council of Nicaea. He gets everyone together, and the church father, Athanasius, he says, okay, we're going to help create the Nicene Creed, which, of course, is the way that we think about Christianity from that point forward. The Nicene Creed defines Christianity. Now, in our timeline, you can see up there that the fourth part of this series goes from 120 to 430. We ended off last week around 325 A.D. And at that point in time, I mentioned something very important about the Roman Empire that was going on, which is that Christians represented a large demographic of the population at that point in time. Now, they were not the only demographic, but they were one of the larger ones. Now, when Constantine makes Christianity legal and he starts backing the Christian faith, what do you think happens to Christianity? It starts to explode in terms of the numbers. People start to join the Christian ranks one after another. And within a few decades, it has changed the culture of the Roman Empire significantly. To give you a sense of how it has changed the culture of the Roman Empire, I need to take you back to something that I told you about a little bit earlier in this sermon series. So one thing that I told you that was very peculiar to Christians is that they refused and rejected the gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like Jupiter, Venus, all those types of gods. They said, we're not going to worship those gods. And even more importantly, those gods do not exist. Now that was rather unusual for this day and time. Because back in those days, yes, we might have worshipped different gods, but I would never say that your God didn't exist. I might think my God is better than your God, but I would never say, oh, your God's not real. But when Christians come about and they say, yes, we only worship Jesus, and we don't even believe that your gods are real, it created this real tension. Because when you converted to Christianity, you would often have to cut ties with your family because members of your family would be worshiping those pagan gods and goddesses, and you say, I can't be a part of you anymore. So Constantine, in 325, he starts promoting all of these Christians to high-ranking offices within the Roman government. And that pressure that existed within individual Christian communities to reject the Roman gods and goddesses, now all of a sudden that's starting to permeate throughout the Roman government. And the pressure over the coming decades, it builds and builds and builds until in 380, the emperor at the time, Theodosius I, he comes out and he says, I'm going to make a decree. And the entire empire is now going to be Christian. That is the sole religion of the Roman Empire rendering all other religions illegal. Now, in case you zoned out on me, I just want to make sure that you heard what I said on that because that's super important. Are you with me? You guys are staring at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Okay. Essentially, overnight, he converts the entire Roman Empire to Christianity. So if you're a part of the empire, if you're a citizen, what that means is you are now a Christian whether you like it or not. This is one of the biggest moments in the history of the church. I mean, think about it. I started this sermon series back in September, right? And in September, where did we start? We started at Jesus' death and resurrection, 30 AD. You remember that? And those guys, the few disciples, they were trying to keep Jesus' movement alive. They were doing everything in their power to keep it going. Do you think those guys could have imagined that 350 years later, this movement, which could barely keep itself together, would become the official religion of the Roman Empire, everybody in the Roman Empire was Christian. I don't think they could have ever imagined that, that was going to happen. And when it happened, it was huge. Now, I think that that's absolutely remarkable. Personally, I think it's remarkable to go from just something so small to that. Would you agree with me, or is that something that happens every day in your life? <laughs> okay. Now, I wish that the story ended there. And everybody rode off into the sunset, and everybody was happy, right? But Do you know anything about human beings? (laughs) Do you know how they act? Do they they just let things be as they are? No, no, it never ends up that way, right? Well, everything's going great. 380, they convert everything over. And 30 years later, everything seems to be going okay, but then something very unexpected happens. In 410 AD, the city of Rome is sacked by the Visigoths. Now, who are the Visigoths? The Visigoths were a Germanic tribe. You can see up there on the map that they were far north. And these people are like cavemen compared to the Romans. They literally are not even close to their level of education. But over the last couple of decades, they've been watching the Roman army fight. And they started mimicking the Roman army. And then they got better than the Roman army. And so this group of cavemen literally came down and they were able to take over one of the most important cities in the greatest empire in the world. Now they didn't know it at the time, but the sack of Rome, it ultimately was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. And the timing could not have been worse for Christianity. Because I want you to just think about it for a second, right? Christianity, for the last 300 years, has been fighting against the state, right? All that time. And then, when they become part of the state, the state fails. Now, what do you think people are thinking about Christianity at this point? For those who resented the fact that the entire Roman Empire was converted to Christianity, they blamed Christianity for Rome's demise, They said, if we hadn't turned our backs on the pagan gods and goddesses, we wouldn't be in this situation. But the truth is, the demise of Rome had nothing to do with Christianity or paganism, for that matter. If you look at the Roman Empire at this point in time, it was massive, it was huge, and their resources were simply spread too thin. To give you an example of this, the city of Rome, at this point in time, was not even the capital of the Roman Empire anymore. I mean, it was clearly important, I mean, the Roman Empire's name for it, but it had moved since then. And they didn't have enough soldiers to actually guard the city, and it left it open to attack. And the same is true for lots of cities around the empire. This, what happened in Rome, would start happening in places all over. But, at the time, they didn't see this as a harbinger of things to come. They just thought, well, it's an isolated incident, And the culprit is Christianity. This is where one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time steps in and says, not so fast. His name was Augustine. And of all the people I have spoken about in this sermon series, next to Jesus and Paul, there is almost nobody more important than this man. Augustine was so influential on the Christian faith and the Western world, it's hard for me to summarize. Literally, the way we live as a society today is because of this one guy. That's how influential he was. So let me tell you a little bit about Bishop Augustine, where he came from, who he was. Augustine was born in 354 AD in the town of Thagast, which is located today in modern Algeria. He was born to a wealthy family, which shouldn't come as a shock to you at this point in time. Pretty much all these guys were. And his mother, Monica, was a devout Christian, really believed very strongly in Christianity. Tried to convert Augustine to Christianity as a young man, but he refused. He didn't want anything to do with it. He was brilliant. And when I use the word brilliant, I've said that about a lot of the people I've talked about in this. He was brilliant, he was a genius. And he studied rhetoric. Now, rhetoric is a big fancy word to say. You learned how to argue really well. So, when he eventually does convert to Christianity, he becomes one of the best arguers for the Christian faith that has ever existed. This guy, to give you a sense of who the, how prolific this guy was, he wrote more than 60,000 pages of text during his lifetime. Now, 60,000 pages would be a lot For a writer alive today in the age of computers. Let alone when he was alive back then. He was writing on papyrus, which by the way was super expensive. And you didn't have whiteout, right? Where you could go back and like get rid of it. So you pretty much had to get it right on the first try. That was your one shot. And it's not like he was talking about simplistic things. He had to get these very complex ideas down the right way the first time. And he excelled at this. Augustine was a genius at connecting the various books of the Bible together. Now, to be fair, to be fair, he was the first person to actually ever have a real Bible to work with. In 380, when the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, that was when the Bible was canonized and you had an actual New Testament, actual Old Testament for the first time. So he's working with a real Bible. He has a little bit of an advantage. But more than any other church father before him, he organizes the Christian faith into doctrines. Now that word doctrine, all it means is a way to interpret scripture. Let me talk about one of the doctrines that he came up with. You are probably familiar with this doctrine. It's the doctrine of original sin. Ever heard of it before? All right. I'm sure you all have heard of the original sin doctrine, right? Or at least original. Have you heard of original sin? Okay. You at least heard of it, even if you don't know what it is. All right. Here's the doctrine of original sin. Very basic. It's the way he interprets the story of Adam and Eve. So he looks at the story of Adam and Eve, and he believes that when they ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that that permanently corrupted humanity. Because based on his reading, right, we all descend from Adam and Eve, and therefore we inherit that original sin. Everybody in here, you have the original sin of Adam and Eve, according to Augustine, because you came from Adam and Eve. Now, are you aware of that basic interpretation of that story? Okay. In fact, I would assume that most of you in here assume that that is the way that you interpret that story. But what most people don't know is that it started with Augustine. And here's the thing. There's a lot of church fathers who we've discussed in the series who came before Augustine, who actually would have disagreed with Augustine, who believed that humans had a lot of potential and were not these horribly sinful creatures that were capable only of minimal acts of goodness. But because Augustine was such a huge figure and because the church adopted his doctrines, all of a sudden, his word became the way that we interpreted the Bible from that point forward. In fact, most of the way that you all have read the Bible for your entire lives is the way that Augustine read the Bible. It's because his interpretations have influenced us so much. That's the kind of figure he was, okay? And he was so big that he essentially voided out everybody else's interpretations. Make sense? We're on the same page? Okay. So this brings us back to 410. What's happening in 410? Are you still with me? 410, do you remember what happens? What happens to Rome? Gets sacked, right? Okay, now... 410 happens to be when Augustine is in his prime. He is outputting tons and tons of writing. And of course, he hears about this argument that the reason why Rome was sacked was because of the Christians and because they turned their back on the pagans. This inspired Augustine to write one of his most famous works. It's known as The City of God Against the Pagans. You probably know it. In the truncated version the city of god you ever heard of it maybe you haven't read it but have you heard of it okay so the city of god is considered to be one of the greatest classics of western literature ever written and the basic premise is quite simple augustine argues that christianity is not responsible for the demise of the roman empire in fact he looks at the last 400 years of history within the roman empire And he says that if it wasn't for Christianity, they wouldn't have succeeded. And if Christianity hadn't been there, they would have failed long ago. That's his basic argument. Okay? Now, he does something else in this book, though. Something else that is really, really critical to understanding how he sees the world. And he does something that nobody has ever done before up until this point. He has a very specific way of looking at history. And he believes that history is a conflict between what he calls the city of man and the city of God. Okay? It's a conflict between the city of man and the city of God. Real important that you zone in on this part if you've been zoning out up until this point, okay? you you right, with me. you with me. Okay. Let's define city of man city of God. The city of man is the earthly city created by humans to serve the self-interests and needs of human beings. Whereas the city of God consists of people whose sole focus is to serve God's interests and God's needs. Now, Augustine argues that the city of man will ultimately fail. No matter where you go, the city of man is going to collapse in on itself. But the city of God will ultimately be successful. Now, why does he believe that the city of God will triumph over the city of man? And here's where it gets a little complicated, so stay with me. He believes that the difference between the two comes down to suffering. Now, there is suffering in both the city of man and in the city of God. But that suffering leads to different outcomes. So if you're part of the city of man, you're going to suffer. But your suffering cannot produce anything greater than itself because the focus of the city of man is on the interests and needs of human beings, what we want, what we desire. However, the suffering of the city of God can produce something greater than itself because the focus of the Christian faith is to suffer for the benefit of others. And so, what Augustine says is that you're going to suffer regardless of which city you're a part of. But you want to know how you become part of the city of God? You do what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, what we read this morning. And what does he say? When he's about to go through suffering, he says, not my will be done, but yours. If that is your focus, then your suffering can produce something greater than itself, and you can help make the city of God a reality. So in this way... Augustine, he attempts to console his fellow Christians, his readers, by saying that even if the Roman Empire is at an end, and it was, 20 years later, the Roman Empire would fall. 430 AD, it was over. It was done. Even if the Roman Empire falls, the city of God will succeed. And what he tells his fellow Christians is he says, I want you to look towards the heavens. Because the city of God is close indeed. All you have to do is be brave enough to reach out and claim that city as your own in order to bring it down to earth. Now I love that image, the image that the city of God is within our grasp, and all you have to do is be brave enough to reach out and claim it as your own. For the last 11 months, we've been talking about the history of the early church, how it started as this small little Jewish sect and grew to become the most dominant and widespread religion in the world. And as we went through this series, you probably noticed that the journey was not exactly straightforward, right? There were a lot of bumps in the road. Their success was not guaranteed, was it? No, it wasn't. Along the way, it looked like they were going to fail a lot. But every time they came to an obstacle, they found a way to overcome that obstacle and move forward. Now, the point of the sermon series, what we did each and every week, is that we would examine one of those obstacles. We would take a look at the obstacle and we would ask the question, how did they overcome this? And then I would try to extract a lesson from that. What can we learn from the roadblocks that stood in their way? And in the end, there were 32 different lessons, 32 different ways that the early church had to maneuver in order to survive. And as I have told you over and over and over again throughout this series, the culture in which we find ourselves today is in such a place that our survival is not guaranteed. And therefore, we need to look at these roadblocks that we face and we need to learn from the early church. It is incumbent upon us that we take these lessons from the early church and we implement them here for ourselves if we're going to be successful above you are the 32 lessons that we have gone through over the last 11 months now these lessons that we've talked about and you probably have read some of these either while I was preaching or you know before right now you probably notice in looking at these that there are two sides to them and the two sides are not duplicates you're not reading one thing on one side and it's the same thing on the other. And there's a good reason for that. Each side is a lesson unto itself. But like most things in Christianity, that lesson is incomplete without its counterpart. So, for instance, I preached a sermon back in January about the destruction of Jerusalem. And when that happened, basically, Christianity was almost destroyed. They almost didn't make it. But the second generation they had to rethink, retool, and rebuild the church. That's one of the lessons that's right up there. And that's what we have to do today, right? We have to rethink, retool, and rebuild the church. But that lesson is incomplete by itself. Yes, that is what we have to do. That is our task. But you need the other lesson that goes along with it in order for it to be complete. So on the other side, what you will find are the words Jesus is a restorer. Now, why is that there? Because we can't do this on our own. We need Jesus' help and guidance as a restorer of our lives if we are going to rethink, retool, and rebuild the church. As Jesus restores us, so are we able to restore the church. Does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? All right. Now that's just one lesson. That's just one of the 32 that's there. We need all of these lessons working together in tandem if we are going to be successful. We, everybody in here, we have to embody these things if we are going to find a way forward. Above you today is the future of our church. And like the city of God, you simply have to be brave enough to reach out and claim that church as your own if we're going to bring it down to earth. And so this brings me to the final lesson of this series. The final thing that I think we need to take away. The reason why we've been doing this all year. So I know that many of you in here, you have been part of the church for the majority of your lives. Is that true? That most of you in here have been part of a church for the majority of your lives. Even if it hasn't been First press, have you been part of a church? Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Now... That means, and that tells me, that you understand how important a church community is. Is that true? Do you understand how important it is to have a community of faith to maintain your connection with God and Jesus? Is that true? Okay, now the reason why you understand that is because you are the benefactor of generational Christianity. You all were born into Christian homes and you were raised in the church. Now the way that you were brought up That is not going to be the way it happens in the future. What you experience is going to be coming less and less common as we move forward. The future of the church looks a lot like what the early church looked like. The people who are going to be coming into the church from this point forward, the vast majority of them, are people who choose to believe in Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? These are people who choose to believe in Jesus. They were not born into it like we were. And so, what I need you to appreciate is that I'm not asking you to embrace all these things for yourselves. I'm asking you to embrace all these things for those on the outside of the church, for those who know nothing about Christianity. What we read this morning from Matthew, what you heard Judy Judy read from Matthew, that message was a message that our job is to help people have an encounter with Jesus. And these things that you see here today, that are all along here, these are the ideas that will allow that to happen. And if you are willing to embody these things, then I believe we can become the church of the future. What many people do not realize is that you are the way that people experience Jesus in the world. A lot of times we think, oh no, they have to come to church to experience Jesus. No, you are are the way that people experience Jesus because it's through you that they first encounter Christianity. And if you are willing to embody these things, then I really do believe that people will start walking through our doors. So if you are sitting there and you are saying to yourself, Alex, I don't need these things to be Christian. You are right. You don't need these things to be Christian. But the people on the outside do. Like the city of God, We are not doing this for ourselves. We are doing this and giving of ourselves for the benefit of others. We are giving of ourselves for God's needs and God's wants and God's desires. We are giving of ourselves so that people outside of the church can have an experience of the kingdom of God here and now. We want that for the future generations. But what we need and what is so important is that you all are willing to be brave enough to reach out and to claim that church as your own. And I truly do believe that together that church can become a reality with God's help. I hope that I hear an amen to that. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening.